Well, in our country, we've had a lot of tragedy happen. Sometimes when you step back and you look at the big picture problem or the heart of the problem, you wonder, man, is our nation ever going to come back to God? And the question is, what is the cure for a blind and dying nation? And the cure is that our eyes are opened by Jesus. We need to have our eyes open to the truth to see things the way God wants us to see them. That's today on Walk in Truth Radio. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Take your Bible, if you would, open it to Mark chapter 10. We continue to move through the Gospel of Mark, and we are going to look at the cure for a blind and dying nation, Mark 10. We're going to do probably at least two parts on this message, and I'm going to weave together the, the situation in Israel and make some application to the United States. And let me tell you why I'm doing that. Because I don't live in first century Israel, and neither do you. However, we always want to take the context of what a passage is teaching us, and then we want to make some application. And and I just want to speak from my heart for a second and tell you that um, I know it's on the hearts of a lot of people, the status of America right now. Where are we? How does God view us? How much does this election really mean in November? What do we do (laughs) given the climate and what's before us? There's all these voices coming at us, right? And as the church, what we have to do, and and I think that you guys would all resonate with this, is number one, we need to anchor ourselves always in the Word of God. We need to let the Word of God direct our steps. But I think it's important for uh, the nation, and I've seen polls in the nation, I've talked to a lot of you guys about this, is that I think you want to hear from your pastor uh, about a perspective, a biblical perspective. Is that true? Okay, so that's what I'm going to try to provide. I'm going to try to do it with the balance and the grace that we all need because I realize that even in a room like this there are very passionate differing opinions about how we navigate the times. So we're going to anchor what we say in the Word of God, but I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of the country For some of you, it's going to be new, and for some of you, it's going to be stuff you already know. But what we want to do ultimately is talk about the cure. I'm not here just to talk about the problems. We all can turn on the news and talk about the problems, right? You know, I can turn on the news every single day and hear everything that's wrong. But I also want to talk about a cure for America, a cure for the world, And that cure is actually before us in our text. So as God would have it, in the timing just before an election and looking at these things, just moving through the Gospels, here we are to look at the cure. Let's pray. Father God, we are here uh, only by your grace. It's your grace that called us. It's your grace that keeps us. And we are so grateful to live in a country where men and women decided that they needed a country that had foundations rooted in the God of the Bible, and they did that unashamedly. We know, Lord, that they were imperfect people. We know that they made their mistakes just like we do. 
But the heart of the nation was established very early. And sadly, through a lot of revisionism and through things that are just not taught anymore, sometimes I fear that we've forgotten who we are. But Lord, we always want to remember who we are in Jesus Christ first, no matter where we live, whether we live in the U.S. or somewhere else. We always find our identity in Christ. But we do live here. And Lord, I believe in your providence. I believe in your sovereignty. You called us to live in this place at this time, even for such a time as this. And it is our prayer, Lord, that we would have open ears to how you might use us in our generation. Because this is the only one we get. We're not going to do this again. We're not going to be born somewhere else. There's no reincarnation. This is our shot to be a voice, to, to be a change agent, to be one that serves others and proclaims the gospel. So it's our prayer, it's my prayer, Lord, that you'd lead us by your Holy Spirit now and help us just to put aside everything, every weight that we've brought into this place, that you may speak, Lord, and that we'd have ears to hear what you'd say to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we look at the uh, final healing in the Gospel of Mark, this is the healing of what's who's been called blind Bartimaeus. He's the final physical healing in the ministry of Jesus Christ recorded in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke. This is the last miracle that he does. As I've been telling you in previous weeks, he's been moving rapidly towards Jerusalem. He's been telling the disciples that he's going to go die. They can't quite fathom it. They've been arguing about who is the greatest and you know who's going to get the top positions, and they just seem to not be able to really comprehend or take in the words that he's saying. And so as he moves now uh, towards Jerusalem, he is going to do a final healing, and we're going to pick up the story in Mark 10. This is verse 46. Before we go there, let's just pick up the theme verse as we go back and revisit it one more time. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man, that's a title for the Messiah from Daniel 7, did not come to be served, but to serve. And the way he served is he gave his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you set the historical context, one of the things that you realize, you realize that's going on in Jerusalem right now is that, in Israel for that matter, is that Israel is under Roman occupation and scholars date the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus between about 30 and 33 A.D. The nation of Israel actually falls in 70 A.D. And if you've studied any history of the nation of Israel, you know the temple falls to the ground at the hands of the Romans, and it never rises again. They have not rebuilt that temple in 2,000 years. And Israel as a nation uh, you know, you could say for a while ceases to exist. There's Jewish people on the planet. God retains Israel as a people, but as a nation, they're gone out of the land. They don't return to the land until 1948. They recapture Jerusalem in 1967. That's in a lot of our lifetimes. I was just a little toddler at that time. But in 1967, through what many would describe as a miracle of God, they won the Six-Day War, they recaptured Jerusalem, and everybody who's a Christian and has any you know, inkling of Bible prophecy has been watching Israel. We've been interested to see what God's doing. 
And if we look at the Bible and we look at the history of the Bible, we know how the nation started. The nation started with a single man. His name was Abram. He was a idolater. He was uh, a man who was uh, from a family of idolaters. And God called him and God said, look, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And he called him to go to a land by faith that he didn't even know where he was going. And he left his homeland by faith, Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to a land that God would show him. And through one man, a son was born, and that even while, uh, you know, Abram and, and Sarai, now Abraham and Sarah were very old, and Isaac was born, called the son of promise, a single son through whom the line of the Messiah would come. And then through Isaac, we know Jacob and Esau were born, the two fighting twins in the womb. It turned out that the older would serve the younger, and Jacob would end up serving his uncle Laban. He would want to marry Rachel. He would get duped by uncle Laban and end up having Leah first and then Rachel, if you know the story. And he, the, the one who was so tricky with his brother ended up getting tricked by his uncle as well. But ultimately, he has 12 sons and one daughter. The 12 sons come from four different women in an incredible chapter. If you want to read Genesis chapter 30, uh, as I mentioned uh, a few Wednesday nights ago, the, the, the whole scene of Genesis 30 could be a show on Jerry Springer. I mean, that's just how ugly and weird and bizarre it was. Maid servants being brought in, sisters fighting, who's going to be with him, this and that. But ultimately, these 12 sons are born. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of the sons, his name is Joseph, and he is one of the sons born to Rachel. The other one is Benjamin. And Joseph is a man who is tricked by his brothers, sold into slavery. Some of them want to kill him. But ultimately, he ends up in the land of Egypt. And as he's in the land of Egypt, he spends time wondering what God has done to him. Because he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison. Uh, you know, he basically seems like he's a forgotten man. But then all of a sudden, through a series of events in the book of Genesis, this man rises up to the second leadership position in Egypt, the most powerful nation of the world. His family has to go to Egypt in a famine. And Joseph reveals to his family that he's still alive. And Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. And Israel is preserved through this man, Joseph. And Israel continues to live on as a nation. The whole time, God intended that this nation would be a light to the Gentiles. Now this nation, you know, as we move quickly now through the corridor of history, they've had their share of problems. One of their main problems throughout their, their entire history is they continue to forget God in times of prosperity. Sound familiar? They continue to embrace the gods, the false gods and goddesses around them from the other nations. They, even their greatest kings like David, and not so much David, but especially Solomon, got duped into idolatry, set up high places, and the Bible even says that Solomon's heart was turned away from God. And the nation that was a light to the Gentiles, the nation whose king Solomon, people from all over the place came to hear his wisdom, that nation became all of a sudden a nation that was inviting the judgment of God. And why do you ask? Well, simply because they turned their back on God. 
They started to try to, you know, be uh, all things to all people. They forgot their identity. They forgot who they were. And Solomon started building all these high places, and God was displeased with Solomon. And good kings throughout the history of Israel would tear down the high places. They would say, no, our allegiance is to the God who established this nation. And a king would really be judged based upon what he did in terms of the national life of Israel, whether he would turn the nation back to God or away from God. You could think of, you know, Josiah as a king. You can think of uh, Ahab as a wicked king, Josiah as a good king. And they were largely measured by what they did in terms of the national life of the nation. Some of you are saying, Pastor Michael, but we live in the U.S. It's true we do. But I think you all understand that the U.S. is not Israel, but the U.S. was established on the God of the Bible. Interestingly enough, Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget we are one nation under God, then we will, be, we will soon be one nation gone under, close quote. You know, even our presidents throughout the ages realized, as imperfect as they were, that we needed to be a nation that understood our origins. We're so worried about pleasing everybody who, you know, has a comment in this nation anymore that we don't even want to talk about it. But look, the foundations of this nation were placed firmly on the God of the Bible. There's no denying it. If you, uh, for example, look at the historical sites in America, particularly the capital city of Washington, D.C., it reveals that America was a nation birthed by men who had a firm reliance upon Almighty God and on his son, Jesus Christ. Inscribed upon our buildings, monuments, and national symbols is our nation's faith in God. A sampling of this evidence seen in some of our monuments and buildings in Washington, D.C. follows. And I just want to give you a few, but I think this is important. Hey folks, this is Pastor Michael. Really appreciate you tuning into the broadcast today. I'm going to tell you about a website that we have. It's a brand new website. It's called walkintruth.com. And on that website, you can find a new devotional. It's a video devotion called A Step Closer. The intention is to help you get a little bit closer in your walk with Jesus Christ. So go today to walkintruth.com. Scroll down on the video devotion called A Step Closer. And our prayer is that it'll get you a little bit closer in your walk with Jesus Christ today. That's walkintruth.com. God bless you. Inscribed upon our buildings, monuments, and national symbols is our nation's faith in God. A sampling of this evidence seen in some of our monuments and buildings in Washington, D.C. follows. And I just want to give you a few, but I think this is important. The Library of Congress within the Great Hall of the Jefferson Building are two climate-controlled cases. One contains the Gutenberg Bible, the other a hand-copied giant Bible of Maine's. The display of these two Bibles is very appropriate because in the words of President Andrew Jackson, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. Many biblical inscriptions can be found on the ceiling and walls, including the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not from the old King James. And wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom with all thy getting, get understanding. In the main reading room are statues and quotes representing fields of knowledge. Moses and Paul represent religion with the inscription, what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. 
Science is represented by the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. History is represented by one God, one law, one element, one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. The Supreme Court, the biblical foundation of American law, is evidenced throughout the building as well. On the outside east pediment is a marble relief of Moses holding tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And, you know, as you continue to to move through the the buildings in D.C., you can see that the Bible, the scriptures are everywhere. Moses and the Ten Commandments, the ultimate lawgiver, his full face, the only one seen in the honorable court. Why? Because America knew what it stood on. America knew that there were laws from God that did not change. No matter how the winds of culture change, God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the early founders of our country knew precisely that. So even in the walls of our Supreme Court, now today we have a judge who was ordered, you know, and he fought this, that he was told the Ten Commandments could not be, I think, in the court that he represented. We have people saying that the Ten Commandments should not be posted anywhere in our nation. Why? This is our foundation. This is who we are as a people. We cannot deny it. In the Capitol building, all of the eight large paintings in the rotunda present aspects of Christian history. A few include the landing of Columbus. Columbus said he was convinced to sail because, quote, it was the Lord who put it in my mind, and that, quote, the gospel must still be preached to so many lands. One of the paintings in the rotunda is the baptism of Pocahontas, This shows the baptism of one of the first converts in the Virginia colony. The Virginia charter said they came to propagate, quote, the Christian religion to such people as as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. Departure of the pilgrims from Holland shows the pilgrims observing a day of prayer and fasting. William Brewster is holding an open Bible upon which is written, quote, the New Testament of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God with us is written on the ship's sail. Also in the rotunda are carved reliefs, including Penn's treaty with the Indians. Penn called his colony a holy experiment and said of it that my God has given it to me. Will I believe, bless, and make it the seed of a nation? The landing of the pilgrims says, quote, having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, close quote. And I could go on and on. But we've had recent voices tell us that we're not a Christian nation. That we, you know, there's a lot of denial about our foundings or, you know, a lot of people who want to redefine this nation. Let me ask you, just as a person observing the times, how do you think we're doing? How do you think we're doing since we decided to move away from God and take prayer out of the schools and You know, now we've had students show up at certain public schools with their Bible and they've been, they've had their Bible confiscated from them. In free reading time, they brought their Bible to school and their Bible was confiscated from them. A lot of teachers in the public schools who, there's a lot of good Christians in the public schools, but they feel like they're under a lot of pressure not to uh, talk about Christ or the Christian faith. Look, there's been a lot of revisionism that's gone on in this nation. And I think it's about time that the pulpits in America said, look, we're not ashamed of who we are. And we're not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
You see, there is a precedent, folks, and here's the precedent. When a nation moves away from God, we get ourselves in trouble because if you move away from God, to where do you go? The only place that you can go if you move away from the God of the Bible is either either to a false God or to humanism. And America has done that. We have moved largely to humanism. We've made it all about us and you know what we need for our lives. And sadly, this has infiltrated much of the church. There's a prayer room in Washington, D.C. It contains an open Bible sitting on an altar in front of a stained window showing George Washington in earnest prayer. Behind him is etched the first verse of Psalm 16, which says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. The Washington Monument, the tallest structure in Washington, a message of praise to God goes forth, engraved upon the aluminum capstone on the top of this 555-foot monument is Laos Dale. Inside the structure are carved tribute blocks with many godly messages like, Holiness to the Lord inside the tall Washington Monument. Search the scriptures. The memory of the just is blessed. May heaven uh, to this union continue its beneficence. In God we trust and train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. In the White House, an inscription by the first president to inhabit the White House, John Adams himself, is cut into the marble facing the state dining room fireplace. It reads, quote, I pray heaven to bestow the blessing, the best of blessings on this house and on all that hereafter shall inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof, close quote. And I look at the scene today and I look at the recent debates among the two main candidates for president and I tell you what, my heart breaks for what I see. But I will tell you this, that despite what I see with my eyes and hear with my ears, I know that there is a God who is faithful. I know that there is a God who says, if you will cry to me, I will hear you. If you will humble yourself before me, I will hear from heaven and I will bring healing. You know, when Jesus is going in to Jerusalem, and we'll we'll get to the text here in a moment, and this is why this is going to be done in at least two parts. When Jesus is going into Jerusalem, he's going to heal a man who is blind. Think about this. Every time Jesus did a healing miracle, it was a parable. In other words, underneath the physical healing, there was a spiritual message. Bartimaeus is the last healing before the cross, and Bartimaeus' physical problem is that he's blind. And the nation of Israel was blind. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they're like the blind leading the blind. If the blind lead the blind, are they not going to fall into a pit? Jesus said, scarcely does his people hear with their ears or see with their eyes. Because if they would hear with their ears and see with their eyes and turn in their heart, I would heal them. And then he goes to the cross. Despite how the nation treated him, despite the confusion among the disciples, what does he do? For, for the sake of love, because he came not to be served, but to serve, he dies. His ultimate healing is recorded in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. By his wounds, you are what? Healed. You see, in the face of all that was around him, he continued on the path of love. He laid down his life that others could be truly healed. 
And he, he was treated, you know, he was often mocked by the religious establishment. He goes to the cross being mocked. He says, I'm going to be mocked, scourged, spit upon. And yet he lays down his life to a rebellious people. Why? Because he loves them. Even while they're doing this, even while they're some 40 years away from their ultimate destruction, he comes for the sake of love. And the church needs to learn that lesson. We live in a divided nation, there's no doubt. And you and I may have our particular passions about which way this should go come this November. But I'll tell you this, the church's greatest light is the light of love and truth. In fact, many of our early uh, uh, colleges, one of, some of the well-known ones like Harvard and Yale, you know what? They, their whole uh, foundation, their mottos are Christian mottos. They were set up for the training of ministers for the sake of the gospel. Do you think that people that go to Harvard and Yale now realize their school's motto? Or if they do, do you think they realize that this this university was established for the purpose of the gospel? Well, I'll share more of the uh, stuff with you later in terms of the country, but let's move into the, the healing of Bartimaeus and let's pick it up. We're in Mark 10. That was all introduction. But this is a short account, so we won't move into chapter 11 until next time. And they came to Jericho, Mark 10, 46, and as he, Jesus, was going out from Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude, and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, if you look at the name in Mark 10, 46, Bartimaeus, Timaeus, Bar is son, and Timaeus is his father. So all we know here is that his name is the son of Timaeus. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? It's not that big of a deal. We don't really have his name. He's just known as the son of Timaeus until you do a little search on the Hebrew word for Timaeus. And the root for Timaeus actually means unclean. And then, there, then you start thinking, wow, there's, there's probably a reason why Mark lists his name here. Because the name means unclean. And here's Bartimaeus sitting by the road. He is begging. Other gospel accounts say that there's another blind beggar with him. These beggars would be at the city gate or they would often be by a busy road. And they, that's what they did. They begged for survival. Here's a man who's blind, physically blind, And he has a name, which means he's unclean. How fitting. As Jesus rides or gets ready to actually walk into Jerusalem, he's going to ride on the colt later. He meets a man whose name means unclean and who's blind. That's why Jesus is coming to die. I want to tell you about Suit Up, putting on the full armor of God, a revealing look at God's armor. What this book is really about, it's written in a devotional style, and it's written to help you, the believer, to put on the full armor of God. Each piece of armor is custom made to help you in the typical ways that the enemy attacks. Each piece of armor reflects God himself. I want to get this book in your hands because I believe it's going to help you as a Christian to walk in strength, to know how to put on the armor daily, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and to experience more victory in your Christian life. I would urge you to get the book today on the Walk in Truth store at walkintruth.com. Thank you for listening to today's program. 
If you'd like to listen to this message in its entirety, or if you'd like to visit our church here in Corona, California, visit our website, walkintruth.com.